Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Matty, what is the most pain you've ever experienced? Ooh. I fell off a wall fishing into oysters. Oh, that sounds horrible. And then I had to go to the GP. Oh, did you get infected? And had to get them all scraped out. Uh, that makes me sick. But that wasn't nearly as painful as when I had like quite severe kind of ear infections. Really? Yeah. Wow. I don't think I've ever been in pain. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. Today, we're discussing... Believe it or not. Believe it or not, pain. Remember, receptors are picking up stimuli from the external or internal environment, and you can have three different types to pick up different types of touch. You're going to have those that are unencapsulated, which are just free nerve endings, picking up pain and temperature and crude touch. You're going to have encapsulated, which can pick up uh, varying types of mechanical touch that usually aren't noxious or painful. Definitely not. Right? And you can have other types of free nerve endings that are wrapped around other structures that then give you an indication as to what that structure may be doing, whether it's a movement of hair, for example, or muscles or tendons, and that can help with you knowing where you are in your own place, which is proprioception. Yeah, and protection. So, I mean, the the ones that are wrapped around, say, tendons, which is the end of the muscle, the muscle to bone, that's picking up tension in the muscle, and you don't want to overload your muscles because it'll rip off the bone. And so these ones, these Golgi tendon organs, are specifically um, to tell the body this, what you're picking up right now is way too heavy, and if you don't stop, I'm going to rip off this bone. I've never experienced and that. And so that will just inhibit that response. Okay. Whereas the the muscle bag ones that I spoke about, you have to constantly have tone in your muscles. They can't be floppy because you're not going to be contracting very well. 
And that means both the agonist and the antagonist. They both have to be toned together as you move a muscle. All Does right. that make sense? Makes sense. All right. Shall we m- talk about, very briefly, the pathway of touch to the brain? So that how do we become aware that we have... So let's talk about fine touch, discriminative well, two-point touch. Well, basically all the ones we just mentioned, besides the free nerve endings will travel up a very quick system or quick pathway or quick freeway. Yep. It kind of just goes straight into the um, dorsal horn, doesn't synapse, crosses straight over to the other side of the body, okay, and then goes... Are you sure it crosses over to the other side of the body? Sure it just doesn't go no, up ipsilaterally? Right. Yeah, and it stays on the same side, you're right, uh, but goes right to the back, the dorsal column of the white tracks. So, so do we so need to define these... Uh, Define these terms. So, if you were to take a spinal cord, so as we as we're all aware, well, we have the, the, the nervous system, but let's okay. So, super briefly, yeah. if you've got the spinal cord, you've got your spinal nerves that come off and away and in, right? And you've got thirty-one pairs of spinal nerves. And if you have a look, you'll see that these thirty-one pairs of spinal nerves are going to have sensory nerves coming in, motor nerves coming out. That makes sense, right? So the sensory nerves are ascending, going to the brain for you to be aware of what's just happened. The motor nerves are descending. They're coming away from the brain and they're going to the muscles, organs and glands to tell them to do some sort of activity. All right, so all sensory input, all of these sensory afferent signals going to the brain will always come in via the back spinal Mm. nerve and that's called the dorsal nerve root. All motor output is going to be coming at the front, and that's called the ventral nerve root. And then if you have a look at once this neuron comes in, for example, for sensory via the back, the dorsal nerve root, this very first neuron is going to come in, and it will synapse with a second neuron that sits in the gray matter of that dorsal area. So it's called the dorsal gray horn because it looks like a horn, right? So So that's an area in which it can synapse. If we're look, talking about touch, fine touch, two-point discrimination type of touch, like you said, all those sensory stimulations that aren't covered by the unencapsulated hmm, the receptors, thing. right? Yep. As soon as that sensory input comes in through the dorsal horn, the dorsal nerve root and into the dorsal horn, it jumps into the highway at the back, the white matter. So right at the back called the dorsal column, column and immediately ascends up the spinal cord. So a single neuron will go from the tip of your finger for fine touch, for example, in down your arm into your spinal nerve via the dorsal nerve, uh, dorsal um, horn, horn, jump into the white matter, the dorsal column, and go up to the medulla. At the medulla, that's where it synapses with the second neuron, crosses over, called decussation. The other side of the body continues up to the thalamus, which is the sorting center. The thalamus goes, okay, where did this come from? It came from your finger. What was it for? Okay, it was fine um, touch. I'm going to send it to the part of your cortex that's mapped to your finger so that you can make sense of what you've just touched. Right. So three neurons there from the finger to the medulla, from the medulla to the thalamus, from the thalamus to the cortex, and it crossed over at the medulla. Brilliant. Thank you. So that's... They are very large axons of the neurons. So they, mm. if you could just imagine power lines around the environment that we live, 
Um, these power lines will be those huge ones that you see kind of run through farming paddocks and so forth that carry like tens of thousands of volts. So thickly so they're myelinated. Really, they're really thick axons and they have heaps of insulation around them. So that so means they, they travel quickly. Super quick. Okay. Now, so that's basically two. That's going to be the encapsulated type and the associated type. So they're associated with something else. So they need to be very quick because we need to make sense of the different type of stimulus. Okay. Now, the the first type, which, which is the one we haven't discussed yet, are the, essentially the free nerve endings. And so these are just dendrites that are spread out in the skin. Let's just use the example of the finger again. And so they're in the skin and they've just got their bare dendrite endings that are just exposed there. Now, there's not really any receptors that are going to be um, picking up mechanical stimulus here. They're just kind of going to... Well, there is something that we call a TRIP-V1 receptor, but that's really just an ion channel, okay, that can open and close in response to things. But you've got high-threshold mechanical receptors here. Right. And so they don't pick up the same type of mechanical stimulation as your finger does for fine touch. You know, when you're picking up a pen, that's fine touch. But it will be stimulated if that mechanical stimulus is a lot harder and there's greater pressure. And it's so much pressure that it may become damaging to the finger. And is that just is that just basically by mechanical force displacing the iron channel there? 100% correct. Right. It's mechanical force displacing, and because it's high threshold, it needs to displace the receptors to a sufficient, uh, the channels, to a su sufficient degree that it will open up sodium-gated channels. Okay. And so once, and we know this from when we did the nervous system, once sodium enters the, the cell, in this case the neuron, it's going to make the inside of the cell more positive. It's going to bring it closer to its um, action potential, so its threshold, and therefore it's most likely, or more likely, to send a nervous impulse down that neuron and then up to the brain. So are we talking about pain and temperature now? Yeah, so this is the free nerve endings, which are predominantly are going to carry these kind of stimulus. Very crude touch, pain, so noxious stimulus, and an assortment of temperature. Yes, and that will be triggered by mechanical stimulation, thermal stimulation, and chemical stimulation. So they're the three triggers. And in actual fact, if you were to break up these fibers, you'd find that there's going to be uh, these receptors, I should say. You're going to have receptors that are stimulated by high-threshold mechanical stimulation, Right. So it means a lot of mechanical force. Mechanico-thermal stimulation, so a mixture between mechanical and thermal s stimulus. And what's called polymodal stimulus, which can be stimulated by mechanical, thermal, and chemical together. So my question to you then, are they the separate receptors or are they just the same receptor that can just respond to these stimulus differently? Huge amount of overlap, as far as I'm aware. Right. Yeah. But is it, my question is, is it really just the same ion channel that can just open and close in response to these different things rather than neurons with separate... I think, receptors? as far as I'm aware, yes. Okay. I think so. And that's why you get a lot of overlap when it comes to... So these receptors will be on or trigger specific pain or these specific pain on temperature fibers. And... 
some of which are thinly myelinated, some of which are unmyelinated. Okay, now with when when you say unmyelinated, I guess we've got to be just careful because technically they're not unmyelinated. They're just um well in the peripheral nervous system, typically what myelinates the nerve is going to be a cell called a swan cell. And they wrap themselves around the axon completely and give that myelination or that insulation. Now, usually just one swan cell will wrap itself around a part of of a neuron or a segment of the axon. But when we talk about the unmyelinated nerves, which could be um, the C-fiber nerves, which is a type of pain, or maybe even sometimes they refer to autonomic nerves, post-ganglionic autonomic nerves, they still have a swan cell kind of wrapped around it, but the way that it wraps is kind of it wraps around multiple neurons at once. So if you want to be technical, they still have to have myelin around it. Otherwise, I don't think a nerve really can survive without myelin, at least in the peripheral nervous system. Sure. Um, but from a classif- classification point of view, yes, they are referred to as unmyelinated. I just wanted to make that... So I think to make things easier, because I think we've we've made it pretty difficult so far for people to follow. I think we need to say that we're now talking about. So you've got touch stimulation, fine touch, proprioception, two point discrimination, right? And that stimulates certain types of touch receptors, and that goes to the brain via the same side of the, of the spinal cord that it comes in, mm-hmm. and crosses over at the medulla, then goes to the thalamus, then goes to the cortex. The other type of stimulation we're talking about now is pain and temperature, and they piggyback on each other, basically, piggyback on each other's pathways. And for pain and temperature, you've got three different types of receptors. You've got high-threshold mechanical receptors, mechanico-thermal receptors, and polymodal, which picks up mechanical, thermal, and chemical, which means the three stimulants are mechanical, chemical, and and thermal for pain and yep. temperature. Okay. Okay, so, and once you trigger these receptors, it's going to do the same thing as it does with any other neuron. It's going to result in an action potential. Right. And these receptors are found on different types of pain fibers. So, the pain fiber is basically the pain neuron. The, now, the very first pain neuron that's attached to the receptor. Now, you can have pain fibers, which are called um, A-delta fibers, and you can have pain fibers called C fibers. Now, the myelination that we're talking about, you've got A delta fibers, which are poorly myelinated, mm-hmm. and C fibers, which are unmyelinated, and they're both very thin in diameter, which yep. usually means that they have a slower conduction. Yes. Now, when you trigger these fibers, what you're going to find is that predominantly the, the high threshold mechanical are A delta fibers, the mechanico thermal are A delta fibers. And the polymodal, which pick up all three, are the C-fibers. And we usually associate A-delta fibers with a sharp pain that happens yep. onset very quickly. Pain, yep. And C-fibers with dull, aching pain that comes on a bit later. Right. Yep. So the A-delta fibers are faster moving, about 15 meters a second. And the C-fibers a bit slower, about 0.5 meters a second. Mm. Now... Do you want to talk about, once we've stimulated these, so we spoke about when touch comes into the spinal cord via the dorsal dorsal, um, horn, horn, and then goes up the same side once it jumps into the dorsal white matter. 
What happens with pain when it comes into the dorsal grey horn? Yeah, so it still comes into the dorsal horn the same way as the other one does, but instead of going straight to the, the back freeway, it synapses right in the horn. And depending on if you're talking about the A-delta ones, which are the the faster firing or the faster travelling pain receptor neurons, so as you said, they move 6 to 30 metres a second, they synapse at kind of the, the most superficial layer in the dorsal horn on a kind of a, a, a relay neuron, which is just a kind of a small intermediate neuron. And the slower ones, the the slow C-fiber ones, the unmyelinated ones, they travel pretty slow at about half a metre to two metres a second. So they come much slower mm. into the back. And they synapse a bit deeper in the dorsal horn than the A-delta fibres or the faster fibres. Either way, both of them will synapse on a relay neuron, an interneuron, and then they go to the other side of the body right at the level that they come in at. So they cross over in the level that they come in, which means they sign up with their second neuron at the level in which they enter. Yes. And they cross over to the other side, and then where do they go once they cross over to the other side of the spinal cord? Okay, so the two will generally remain separate. And so there's two kind of... Like A, Delta, and C? Yeah. Okay. So there's two kind of pathways that travel up. I mean, collectively, you could probably call them... In, in a spinothalamic pathway. Um, it's just a fairly descriptive name of spine up to the thalamus. Um, but it's thought that one adapted a bit later or evolved a bit later than the other one. So we call one a, a neospinothalamic tract, which is the A-delta. So that's new. New. And yeah. then there's the paleospinothalamic, which is old. And that's C-fibers? That's the C-fibers. And are they located in the same white matter? Do they ascend they'll up? Still, they'll be still in the kind of the anterolateral spinothalamic tract, but yep. they will be in a distinct kind of tunnel okay. or a section. Now, starting with the neospinothalamic, which is the A-delta ones, as we said, they've crossed to the other side. Um, now, where they will terminate, so they, they will kind of go up, and they will then synapse again in the um, brainstem. So particularly in the reticular formation, which is kind of like this um, kind of long column in the brainstem, which is uh, very important for arousal. Don't they synapse at the medulla? Well, the, probably the, maybe the, the proximal end of the medulla or the, maybe the cranial end of the medulla, but a reticular formation. So it's a, a fairly long... Which sort of descends down through the whole brainstem, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's quite a a lengthy tract. Um, And then it will kind of... So it's synapse there, and then it will go to the thalamus, okay, where, like you explained earlier, with touch, the thalamus will kind of sort the signal, so it's like a relay centre, and then it will shoot that remaining part to the um, somatosensory cortex, which will generally go with touch. Now, it's important to note, and well, the main the main neurotransmitter in this particular tract, uh, the neospinothalamic tract, is glutamate. So that's a, a quite a powerful excitatory um, neurotransmitter. Now, it's important to know that, as you said earlier, Michael, you said that the A delta is not only for pain, but it's also for mechanical stimulus. Mm-hmm. So when you are crudely 
um, stimulating these receptors by a crude touch. Not a touch that necessarily causes pain, but it's just uncomfortable. It's not yeah. a pleasant touch. It's not like touching you with, say, a feather. It would be more like scraping a, I don't know, a back of a pen against your skin. Yeah. So it's a bit crude, a bit annoying, but it's not necessarily painful. Yeah. Now, as it goes up to the somatosensory cortex, it's very, uh, it's very close to localize where the pain is. Because a lot of that goes with the tactile sense of discriminative touch, the fine touch that we just described earlier. So it has the ability to, to localize where that pain is pretty well. Yeah. Now, if you were to discriminate it just to activate... And why is that? Because it, it's... Uh, I guess there's more in that particular area. It has a greater... Um, Two-point discrimination? Or just a, a greater amount of... Uh, fibers associated in the cortex as well. So, okay. that, so that part of the cortex would have probably more res- receptors that um, what am I trying to say? Um, yeah, there's a if topographic yeah, of the body. If you have more receptors peripherally at a particular area, usually you're going to have a, a larger area of the cortex associated with it, mm-hmm. and you're more s- you can more specifically localize know where it is, where it's coming right. from. Now, if you were with the A-delta, that neo-spinothalamic pathway, if you were just to stimulate the pain, it would be pretty poor in localizing. But because mostly it travels with a uh, mechanical stimulus, it ends up being pretty accurate. So you can pretty much localize where that pain is. Okay. So if you were to have someone hit you with a hammer on your finger you're not only um, stimulating noxious stimulus, but mechanical stimulus, and you would know almost straight away that that is at the end of your finger. Mm-hmm. Okay. Does that all kind of clear? Yeah, that makes sense. So when I wake up in the middle of the night and I kick the edge of my bed with my toe, stub my toe, and I experience this initial sharp stabbing pain, which then I feel straight away... And it disappears pretty quick, and then for the next 45 minutes, experience a dull, aching pain. Throbbing. Throbbing. I've first stimulated A-delta fibers, and then yeah, stimulated well, C fibers. Well, I would go a step further, and I can at least say this happens to, has happened to me, where, same scenario, you're walking in the dark, and then you kick your toe. I would say the first thing you feel is that thud, or the feeling that you kick something... And then you get the pain. So you first get a touch sensation. Yeah, so and that's then the proprioception and probably some kind of movement. Mm. So you'd know you've done it. Yeah. And then the pain comes. So just highlighting that. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think I would. because So you're saying that because touch is newer, the basic fine touch, two-point mm. discrimination sort of touch is, is newer evolutionary speaking, it's faster, it's on a f- quicker highway, you're, you're aware of it first, then you get the pain, the sharp shooting pain second because it goes about 15 to 30 odd meters a second. Yeah. And then you got the dull aching pain because it sometimes takes seconds to minutes to get to the brain right. for you to be aware of it. And then it's, well, that's the C fibers, which we're going to talk about now. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So the C fibers, now it's coming in. So we've done the, we've described how it's come in, how it's synapsed and how it's crossed over, how it's still in that spinothalamic tract. But this one is the paleospinothalamic, which is an older tract. 
So this is probably slightly separated to the, um, the A delta tract. But this one, it kind of goes up and will synapse in the brainstem in three areas rather than just one. And the three areas is also the reticular nuclei, the tectal area of the midbrain, and also the periaqueal grey matter, which is um, probably pons medulla. Is that kind of correct? Yeah. Yeah. And so they're kind of three sections of where these C fibers are ending. Now summarize the importance of these three. Because this is an important point. The reason why you've highlighted this isn't because to make it more complex for people. It's because if you stimulate these particular areas, what do you tend to stimulate overall? What do, what do you tend... What's the, what's the okay. response? Well, because you're in the brainstem, the brainstem is pretty primitive. It's still about very basic vegetative fun functions. And a big part of it is arousal. So it will... Um, and this is probably part of the reason why when you go back to bed after you kick the toe and it starts throbbing, you can't sleep. It's made you highly aroused, as in um, <laughs> not like that, Michael. Um, but I don't um, get aroused by pain. <laughs> I get become more alert, maybe, alert, is the right. term. Even though aroused is the term we use, alert is probably better in this Colloquially. Case, especially yeah. when people can't see <laughs> what we're actually doing. What? We're not doing anything. <laughs> and so now in the brainstem... It can choose to do a number of things, yeah. but some things it will do is also go to the thalamus. It can go to the um, hypothalamus, which can cause um, an endocrine or autonomic response. It can go to the limbic system, which can create an emotional response. So you can get upset, you can cry, you get angry, you punch a hole in the wall, yeah. which then will make your knuckles broken and that will just amplify yeah. the problem. <laughs> or it can go to the cortex and um, do a whole other number of things or the reticular formation which will just keep you awake yeah and so the two neurotransmitters in the c fibers is also glutamate so it's still excitatory but another big one that comes into play is what we call substance p yep and this is a neurotransmitter that's kind of think of pain when you think self, p. self amplifies itself so it yeah, kind it of works off positive feedback loop and it just keeps Amplifying it, and this is kind of why this kind of chronic pain, this C fiber pain, just keeps ramping up. Well, for me, it seems like, and I may be wrong, but this is how I interpret how substance P works: is that not only does it work as a neurotransmitter that stimulates neurons postsynaptically, stimulates pain neurons, but it also reduces the threshold of those yeah, neurons, yeah. and so it not just stimulates like a normal neurotransmitter it stimulates and then ba basically potentiates it so that the next stimulation doesn't require as much stimulation to trigger it and so the more it gets stimulated the lower the threshold the easier it is to trigger right but good point i mean that's how i picture substance p but i think it's important to note that and i know that you're you're planning on getting there but when you stimulate these pain fibers you're not it's not just like normal touch or smell or taste or whatever where you you have a particular stimulus that stimulates the neuron and sends a signal. Sometimes you got, for pain and temperature, numerous chemicals are released at the same time. And these numerous chemicals can actually uh, modulate the signal at the different areas. So peripherally, it can modulate the signal. It can modulate the signal centrally, so in the spinal cord and brainstem. And some of these chemicals 
like substance P, reduce the threshold so it's easier to send the pain signal. Another chemical is bradycytokines. Okay, All so these. I know you're aiming to get there in a sec, but I think just to finalize that, my point is that in addition to the neurotransmitters when it comes to pain, there are other chemicals that are released, usually, which again modulate that pain signal when it gets sent. Yeah. Either makes it easier or more difficult to send the signal. Good. And so now when you're out at the big toe that you just kicked at the end of the bed or that finger that you smacked with a hammer, yeah. um, the A-delta fibers, which were that fast mechanonoxious pain, okay, may to a degree um, dropped off a bit. But because you've now caused tissue injury in that finger with a hammer or your toe with the bed, um, what's happening in the tissue is you're going to have tissue destruction. And so you ha- you're going to have an inflammatory response. And so some of the things that are going to be released in the tissue will be, you, as you said, um, bradykinin, which is kind of like um, protolytic enzyme breakdown. So your tissues release these enzymes one of them being bradykinin. Um, histamines can be released from mast cells and um, when damaged membranes get activated, they can release something called prostaglandins. Yep. And prostaglandins is not really a, a neurotransmitter of such, but no. it is a, a, a sensitizer. Like yeah, it's a modulator said. of pain. So it will kind of bring the threshold much... Cl- well, bring the resting potential much closer to the threshold so you don't need a great deal of stimulus anymore to make it keep firing yeah bradykinin however is probably a separate um activator so it it in in itself can actually stimulate the receptor itself Mm -hmm. and so some of the analgesics can block this this method of binding to the receptor yeah same with histamine but histamine seems to not really be such a strong one with pain. No. It causes itch. So yes. it causes a prickling effect. This and it, pain and itch is related, right? Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how it's... Um, propagated. Carried and propagated and so forth. But yeah. probably the big one with histamine is histamine is a, a chemical that's released early on in an inflammatory response. So when you smacked your your finger, you've got tissue injury, histamines is released. The big thing that histamine will do is it will act on cells, but also blood vessels yeah. and cause blood vessels to become more dilated. And that's why the area becomes red and hot, mm-hmm. but also it makes them become leaky and that makes fluid escape into the tissue, which makes the area swell. Yeah. And while you, whilst you're doing this, it's, forming more mechanical stimulus on those nerves because you're swelling the, the toe or you're swelling the finger. and that's Plus the release of all those chemicals. Yeah, and that's just pressing them. Continually and so exacerbating. all these things are just amplifying the C-fibers to make the pain worse. But the C-fibers, because they're going to very diffuse areas of the brain, not really going to the somatosensory cortex, it's very poorly local localized mm. and so some c fibers are so bad you might all you might know is you got kind of pain in your arm mm. or your leg mm. or some part in your abdomen not at your finger yeah you probably will still know this, your finger. this is, we need to say that this is not referred pain 
No. We'll talk about that it's in a sec, very, but that's very different. It's localised pain. Yes. And so because the C-fibres aren't there to direct the brain to where precisely the injury is, it's just to constantly remind the brain there's tissue injury here. You need to be doing something. So this out. brings us to why we have pain. Okay. So we have pain as a protective mechanism. At least we have nociceptive pain, which is what we've been talking about so far, in which damage has tissue damage has occurred, and this tissue damage is telling us that there is some potential damage or some actual damage occurring. If we look at the definition of pain, um, if I think it's by the uh, Association for the Study of Pain, the International Association for the Study of the Pain would define pain as an unpleasant sensory or emotional experience of tissue damage or potential tissue damage or described in those terms of tissue damage. So what we're talking about right now is the potential or the actual tissue damage that's occurring. So it's there because what we do, what pain does is it stops us from continually using either performing the same task that's resulting in pain, which is potentially damaging, or using that particular part of the body to mitigate its further damage. That's great. That's acute nociceptive pain. That's important. It's also important, and we'll get there, but I think it's good to note now, it's also important that it needs to even be managed at this early stage. You need to manage your pain. Now... I don't mean straight away you need to go take analgesic medications. I mean you need to manage your pain by identifying what's causing the issue. Mm. And if to benefit that issue is don't use your finger for a little while, tape it up, then that's going to help, right? Yeah. And but you need to the, do whatever's necessary to mitigate that pain. And one of the, um, well, it's kind of the fifth, the fifth side effect or the fifth... Um, Adverse effect. Cardinal sign of inflammation. Right, of inflammation, which is loss of function. And so that's your body's way of saying, you really shouldn't use it anymore. Yeah. You should probably, you know, strap it up. That's right. You know, splint it or not use it. Use the other hand. Yeah. And it's probably when... Well, I won't go on this tangent. I was just going to go on to talking about, you know, athletes and how the doctors and the physios jobs is to get these elite athletes back on the field Mm. next week Mm. by doing everything it can to kind of bypass the system yeah which is not a great thing for the longevity of the the body yeah it might get them on the field and performing but it hasn't really recovered probably optimally Yeah. yeah and down the track you know probably when after retirement the body area stuffed one wheelchair please Mm. Yeah. So it's there for a reason. Like, that's my point. Right. It's, it's happening because we've evolved to have that and it's protective yep. and it's there and it's very old. So yeah. you could argue really, I mean, all organisms to a degree almost have it. I mean, even plants to a degree have... Would you call it pain? No, not pain, but a reaction to tissue damage. Gotcha. In their case, they release um, pheromones mm. And they can actually notify their neighbours. So they still have an unpleasant sensory experience. Well, I don't know how they perceive potential it, or actual but tissue. If they get eaten by a caterpillar, yeah. So their leaves are getting chewed on. They yeah. can release quietly screaming. <laughs> yeah, they can release pheromones, which can tell the, the neighbouring trees yeah. that 
something's happening. Yeah. Or that it can release to other parts of the body, can which can release chemicals, which might be, I don't know, lose the taste for that caterpillar and mm. drop off or something. Mm. Where and then you move into the animals. I'm not sure about the invertebrates, but the, starting with the vertebrates like fish, we know that fish feel pain, even though we thought they didn't. So when we give them certain chemicals that will uh, initiate pain, like uh, acid, like acetic acid, like vinegar, even, mm. and you inject it into a the fish lip, it will stop eating or mm. start to kind of rub it against a rock. And if it, it associates that painful stimulus with something it's done, it will avoid doing that. Gotcha. But if you then give it an analgesic, so you put it in the, in the water some kind of painkiller, it will probably continue to do it or prefer to do something else. So this then also brings us to the question because... Pain, unlike other sensory experiences, is 100% at the level of perception in the brain. Is that your entire experience of pain is perceptual. It's in the brain. Mm, because, 100%. Because, unlike touch, which we said is being um, received at the, stimu- at the receptor level of a type of stimulus, there is no pain stimulus. There's nothing in society mm. or the environment, should I say, that's like, this is pain. That's right. Whereas there is vision yes. or there is light. Yeah. There is sound waves. There is chemicals for taste. Mm. And there is movement or vibration or something that you can sense. But there's no pain in the atmosphere. And you may be thinking, you may be sitting there thinking, okay, but I could cut you. And you may want to cut Matt because I can understand why you would. But I could cut you and I could cut Michael at the same time, to the same degree, right, with the same knife, you'll both experience pain. So there is definitively an external pain, right? But this is the thing. You may trigger pain receptors through various means, right? But what that, unlike other sensory stimulants, there is no objective and defined pain outcome for that stimulus. Unlike touch fine touch, unlike light stimulation to the eyes, unlike sound stimulation to the ears, where you know that a certain decibel or a certain wavelength will result in a particular uh, perceptual experience at the level of the brain, you don't know that for pain. I may say it's a 10 out of 10 pain. Matt may say it's 1 out of 10. So what is 1 out of 10 even a pain? You know, so... And the reason why this happens, the reason why it's variable... Even though we all feel pain, the reason why the pain is variable is because at every level of transmission, whether it's peripherally at the receptor, whether it's in the spinal cord, whether it's up at the thalamus or further in the brain, the brainstem, yeah. the brainstem uh, it is being modified and changed. Okay. And it's been altered in one way or another. It's either been amplified or it's either been suppressed. You can even suppress this just with your thoughts. And so, this highlights how dynamic and plastic pain actually is. And why it's so difficult to treat medically. It's the main reason why people come into hospital is because of their experiencing pain. pain. But you can't measure it. It's not a sign. It's a symptom. That's right. Right? It's not an objective measure. It's a subjective measure that you need to gather from your patient. So... Good point. So, you mentioned there that there is 
a pathway that suppresses. So you said that there's a transmission, mm. but then there's a modulating system. Can you oh, explain something about that? Absolutely. But before we go to that, can we just highlight, because we spoke about touch and pain and we said it goes up to the brain by different sides, but we didn't talk about why is that relevant? Can we just quickly talk about that and then we can talk about, and then we can just focus on pain and the inhibitory descending pathway? All right. Well, so why is it important? Then? Okay. So if I, if I touch something with my right index finger, just touch it, then that touch sensation, like we said, goes down my arm into my spinal cord and goes up the same side in which it came in until it gets to the brainstem, then crosses over, then goes to the left cortex, yep. right? Because we know left cortex picks up right side of the body, okay. vice versa. But then if you were to get a pin and prick the exact same finger that I just finally touched, now I've triggered a painful stimulus, still goes down the arm, still goes into the spinal cord, but this time, like you said, it synapses and crosses over at the level in which it comes in, and then goes up to the brainstem, and then goes to the left cortex as well, right? Which means the pathway going to the brain for touch compared to pain and temperature is opposing. Right, why is that? Important? Touch goes up the ipsilateral side, the same side. Pain goes up, and temperature, the contralateral. All right, why does it do that yeah. is a question that I got asked from a student, and I... This is what I think the answer is. I think it is evolutionarily important for our body to know the difference between a pain and a touch sensation so much that it really needs to separate out these two via the pathways so that if one is damaged, the other cannot be affected. That's what I think. I don't necessarily know for sure. So, for exa- so again, this is highlighting the point. If you then have a spinal cord injury, right? Yeah, Let's say T5, thoracic level 5, and, it, and it's only the right-hand side of the spinal cord that's damaged, so a hemi lesion, right? One side. One side. Again, if we take that example, my right finger finally touched something, goes down my arm into my spinal cord and up the same side in which it came in. But that means it goes up the right-hand side of the spinal cord. That's the side I've got the lesion. That signal stops. Okay can't get to my brain I have no idea I touched something but if you prick that right finger it goes in my arm crosses over at the level in which it, now I shouldn't have said T5 because touch from the arm isn't <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway any level higher than where it's coming in for the arm so C5 T1 that's right C5 T1 the pain's going to cross over immediately and go up unimpeded because the lesion is only on the right hand side and pain crossed over before the lesion so I can experience pain and temperature on the right-hand side of my body below the level of the lesion on the opposite, on the same side of the lesion, but I don't experience touch. And I think the importance of this is to conserve at least one of these important sensory stimulations. Yeah, because if you were then to elicit pain on the opposing side, it's not going to get to the brain, but touch will. But surely we didn't have one involved in response to conserving after injury it would just wouldn't be that well like think okay so the pain pathways first I think right it's old one's older one's newer right? well do you think that because pain's older and it crosses over at the level in which it came in that because we would have been a lower order organism crossing over at the level is is fine but as we became a higher order level organism and we needed this fine touch discrimination that there's for some reason it's it's conserved its energy and kept it 
on the same side in which it came in for as long as possible. For some reason, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, well, maybe that's a question or a job for the listeners. I don't think we've done this before. Oh, we've we? we've given them homework. Have we? Yeah. Okay. Well, this is we've a had a couple of responses. Then. If you if you understand that question, maybe have a look, do some research, and get back to us with that answer. Why do we have those two pathways, a spinothalamic pathway for pain and crude touch versus the dorsal column medial meniscus system, which is the fine touch, discriminative touch? Why have they stayed separate? Now, this now, is called... Sorry, just quickly. This this hemilesion and t- pain touch difference is called Brown-Saccard syndrome. And it's actually, if you've ever watched, um, I don't know, like ER on TV or some show in which somebody's come in from car accident and they don't know if their um, spinal cord's been injured and they're trying to determine this, they'll take an ice cube, for example. So there's temperature right there. Mm. And they'll touch it along various sides and parts of the body and say can you feel this and then they'll just run their finger along certain sides of the body and say can you feel this what they're doing is determining well if they can feel pain on one side but not touch hemilesion right and you can say you know which level and you know what side as well does that make sense yeah clinically pretty accurate so clinically really good so that's why it's important for people to be aware of this all right so now i want you to describe to me or to everyone the Inhibitory of the modulating system. Okay, so, so how can you? You've got that painful sti- stimulation going on, but how can the nervous system actually decrease it? Yes. Make so it, make it less. Okay, so there's ascending inhibitory pathways. Did you know that? Ascending inhibitory pathways. It's called the pain gate theory. Oh, yeah, but let's not go there. Let's just do the other one first. Are you sure? Because pain gate theory happens more at the peripheral. Do your descending inhibitory. Okay, so pain sensation is still a three-neuron chain, like we said. Yep. Right? From the finger, as an example, to the spine, same level, synapse. Then it goes to the second neuron, crosses over. Goes up to the thalamus, synapse. Goes from the thalamus to cortex, there's the three-neuron chain. Um, As this C-fiber ascends... Right, so this is the dull aching long term pain. You said that it's got branches that come off and innervate the PAG, periaqueductal gray matter, the reticular formation, the limbic system, all these different areas yeah. of the brain, right? Mid brain. Okay, so when it stimulates, for example, the PAG, the PAG is going to send down descending fibers, and these descending fibers are regulated through the neurotransmitters serotonin and noradrenaline. Okay. Now, serotonin and noradrenaline will modulate pain centrally, so at the spinal cord. And what it will, how, what it will do is it will inhibit the transmission of a painful stimulus. And it does this, so this is what's called the endogenous opioid system. So endogenous means within, right? Within. And so so it, you're, you're producing almost morphine-like chemicals mm-hmm. by your own cell. So modulated by serotonin and noradrenaline, you produce endorphins, enkephalins, and dynorphins. And what they do is they bind to endorphin-like receptors, yeah. which are these mu and delta and kappa and whatever they may be. And when they bind to them, what they do is they have inhibitory effects. So opioids that are released by the body will bind to these 
opioid receptors and they'll stop glutamate and substance P from being released. And what they'll also, so they firstly stop the neurotransmission of pain, but they also inhibit any binding of the neurotransmitter at the next neuron. Right. At Does that multiple, make sense? At multiple levels? But at multi- it can do it peripherally. It can do it centrally. So right. at the brainstem, uh, at the spinal cord and at, in the brain. Yeah, right. And that can do things like inhibit substance P, its neurotransmitter effect. It can stop even calcium entering to, to cause that to be released, that neurotransmitter yep. to be released, but also potassium channels to kind of continue the action potential along that three-neuron pathways. And all these can have an effect. Potassium or sodium? Well, I think it plays around with potassium, which maybe it's e, it's the efflux. Okay. Wouldn't that hyperpolarize it? So make it more difficult to send yeah. a signal. Um, now, this is... So these opioids have allowed us to be able to identify opiates, which are usually termed the exogenous opioids. Um such as morphine, hmm. heroin, and they're from fentanyl. A poppy plant, right? That's right. From poppy plant. And for some reason, it just happened to be that they bind beautifully to some of these mu or gamma or kappa receptors. There's side effects, obviously, when you stimulate these receptors. Yes, you get analgesia, which is a loss of painful stimulus or hypo, hypoalgesia, which is a reduction of painful stimulus. Okay. Um, but you can also get varying side effects um, such as... Um, you mean systemic effects? Systemic effects. Constipation is a huge one? Well, okay. Constipation is one. True. Um, um, so, it reduces gastric motility. Respir- uh, respiratory re- depression. Respiratory depression because it uh, reduces the medulla's capacity to sense CO2. So, reducing that means it's no longer going to have a trigger. But also, you get these euphoric effects as well. So, these are neurological effects. Euphoria. Dopamine probably response. So, that's where you get your um, dependence on them. So, you can get quite strongly addicted to opioid medication. And usually, you take opioids... Uh, opiates, sorry, these exogenous opiates like morphine, which is a gold standard, if you have severe acute pain. Right. You, it's not really taken for chronic pain. And I... Um, it's not that successful. Long-term pain. Long-term pain, it's right. not really taken. And that f- that's for a number of reasons. One, it's not that successful at mitigating pain. And two, if you take it long-term, you've increased your likelihood of becoming dependent. And if you, the more opiates you take, the you have a negative feedback for your endogenous opioid system, and then your opioid system stops working. Your yeah, reward you probably get system stops working. Even at the receptor level, you probably get desensitized to it too, right? That's Yeah, to a degree, absolutely. And I... I listened to something just recently about probably one of the most common pain states, chronic pain states, which is chronic back pain. Mm. And they found that actually both morphine and then paracetamol has not... So this is long-term use for chronic back pain. has just maybe a 20% better efficacy than placebo. Wow. So not much. Wow. Um, so for chronic, like you said, for chronic, you're probably using these 
proper medications aren't probably going to be a huge benefit. No. And the reason why... Should we talk about this sensitization, what's happening to for acute to turn into chronic? I think we need to talk about that at some point. Yeah, this becomes quite complicated, but... I think I've got an easy way to explain it. Okay. You want me to give it a shot? Sure. Okay, so you got two different... Predominantly, you've got nociceptive pain and neuropathic pain. And nociceptive is usually that acute pain. It's, it's come on short-term, usually uh, doesn't last very long, and will subside after either you've found out what's causing the pain and you've mitigated it. So there's usually tissue injury associated usually, with it, right? Yeah, that's right. Usually tissue injury or, or something has happened to your body that's causing pain, and it, once you find the cause and fix it, the pain disappears. Okay. Um, that's no susceptive pain. And that's usually somatic, let's say. It's so a body. Body. I guess you could have it in visceral. It could be but, visceral. But when we go to the neuropathic, it's usually nerve pain, right? That's right. And so neuropathic then, like you just said, is nerve pain. And this is uh, either direct damage to the nerve or a reorganization of the nerve that results in pain of the nerve that is usually long-term. So the difference between acute and chronic when we refer to pain, so acute chronic is simply just time frames. That's it, right? For some reason, I hear people talking about, they say the word chronic in the context that it means bad. Okay. But it's just a time frame. If something's chronic, it doesn't mean bad. It just means long term. So acute pain is usually less than three months. Chronic is usually more than three months. Right. Okay. right? Um, so neuropathic pain is usually chronic pain. And it's usually a pain that you experience that actually doesn't have a cause, which means there's nothing you can necessarily do to ch- you know, change. There's nothing you can fix to get rid of that pain. So there's no underlying cause for the pain that warrants doing anything, but that pain does exist and it's still there, right? Yep. And usually it's because the neuropathic, the nociceptive pain has not been managed well and has led now to a neuropathic pain. Okay. Okay. So first point is that you need to manage your nociceptive pain. And again, different ways, like we said earlier, keep away from what's causing the pain. And this, would this be like chronic ongoing pain that doesn't... Re- re- Relieve itself? It could be persistent or intermittent. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So, so fibromyalgia, for example, is chronic pain, but it's intermittent. It's not necessarily always there. What about like some headache states that just yep. people get reoccurring? Can you call that neuropathic or is that... If it lasts for months, then yeah. No, but like it just comes in cycles, so... Well, it's probably an acute on chronic, right? So, you've probably got a, an underlying chronic condition... But you get a, acute exacerbations of right. pain. So it's probably still acute pain. Yeah. From a chronic condition, maybe. I mean, so for example, like um, different types of neuropathic pain could be di- diabetic neuropathies. It could be direct damage to the well, nerves that's, that's or injury. That's a good injury. example because diabetic neuropathy is where over time, from poorly managed sugar levels, it's caused probably a multitude of things. But there's particular small diamond nerves again, those kind of mechanoreceptor nerves that get the sugary molecules taken up in their um, myelin and swell and bust them open. Mm. And that causes a, a state where the, the kind of nerves die off. And I think the first, one of the first signs is diabetics will lose vibrational touch. So, you know the tuning fork? If yep. You hit, hit that and it vibrates and if you stick the blunt end to say the toe because it usually diabetic neuropathy usually affects the hands uh, what is it called 
um, stocking and glove. Yeah. So where you'd have stockings where you'd wear gloves, that, that kind of region would yep. become desensitized. And so if you do that vibrational fork, they would lose that sense. And so that's one of the first things to go. Um, and then it would just manifest potentially from a painful. Mm. And so the increased glucose is damaging the, the, the neurons directly. Yeah, I think it's called advanced glycosylated end products or something. Yeah, that's it. And it can, it's almost like sugary attachments. And you can get it not only in your nerves, you can get it in um, your retina. Yeah. And it can also have the effect in your kidneys. Yeah. Um, and one of the r- ways you can tell if a patient has been adhering to their diabetic medications or not is it can, the same thing can happen to hemoglobin. And you can do blood tests called HB, HB1Cs, which mm-hmm. kind of indicate how well the patient has managed their diabetes for how long. How long does a red blood cell last? Three months. So yep. you can tell that they've had good sugar compliance for three months or not. So if they lie to you, you can basically... See, see objectively. <laughs> and, that, and this is important because... The reason why the nerve damage occurred, you may be thinking, okay, gl- glucose is causing nerve damage, but this increased glucose and, and, and glycosylated, uh, sorry, advanced glycosylated end products just results in this chronic inflammatory process at, at the nerves. And so you've got inflammation. Now, this is leading to my point of how does acute turn to chronic, right? If you have an inflammatory process that's happening and it's not taken under control, Right? What happens in inflammation? Like you said, prostaglandins are released, histamines are released, bradykinins are released, and a whole barrage of other chemicals are released. And what they can do is that these nerve fibers, at pretty much every level, they can reduce the threshold of the, rece- the pain receptors. That's the first thing. The other thing they do is they further... So that's one part of the sensitization that's happening. Another part is that you increase the actual amount of pain receptors at these neurons as well. So the threshold decreases and the number of pain receptors increase, right? Now, what that tends to mean is that less stimuli can result in a triggering of pain. And this is hyperalgesia. So, for example... Hyperalgesia is if I were to pinch you and you'd go, oh, yeah, that's a little bit painful. And then the next day I pinch you to the same degree, right? Same amount of force. And you go, oh, wow, that is so painful. That's now a 10 out of 10. Yesterday, that was only 3 out of 10. That's hyperalgesia. Okay. Okay. Or, for example, I may just touch you and it shouldn't cause any pain. And you go, oh, that's painful. That's allodynia, right? And so... These two things are quite difficult at times to distinguish. Yes. So I think even when my my supervisor, my PhD, he was a a pain researcher, and he, I mean, even his lab struggled to give a good definition. I think between the two. Well, a good, a good I w- I do it by look talking about getting a sunburn. Yeah, sunburn's a good one for allodynia. You can you can touch your arm without a sunburn, doesn't hurt. You get a sunburn, you touch your arm, it hurts. Why? Because the sun has damaged this, the tissue, leading to inflammation, yeah. releasing these chemicals, which are sensitizing the pain receptors. Now, that's fine because once the burn goes and the tissue heals, those chemicals disappear. But if you don't manage inflammation, you're not managing the chemicals. And this is the thing about pain is that it's not whatever kills doesn't kill you makes you stronger. With pain... 
the more pain you experience, the more pain you experience. So you don't, it doesn't make you stronger. If you experience pain and just go, oh, I'm just going to tough my way through it, what actually happens is the next time you experience pain, it's likely that you'll experience more pain and more pain and more pain. Usually, so pain is different to all our other senses in the sense that we get desensitized to sensation, right? So for example, touch. If I put my sock on in the morning, I feel it for a couple of seconds, then I don't feel it for the rest of the day. My body has desensitized to it. You can walk into a room and if you see something, you see something new, you'll see it straight away. But then after a while, it sort of drifts into the background. You desensitize. Same with smells. You're not gonna, you don't smell a fart in, <laughs> in a room for half an hour, right? Even though those, those molecules are still there, it drifts into the background. But for pain, it's the opposite, right? Thank goodness, especially if I'm hanging out with you. Pain, it's different. A little bit of pain leads to even more pain. So it has to be under control. So and this is central so sensitization. So does it just mean your consciousness is focusing more on it? No, um, but in saying that, once you've, so all we've spoken about is the physiological response to pain in that threshold decreases due to the chemicals, increased amount of receptors that are present, right? And all this leads to sensitization yeah. and, and a re- rewiring of the neurons that are present. But the more pain you experience in, up in your head, up in your mind, I, I could say, you start becoming more emotionally linked to the pain now. So the, you now don't go, oh, the pain's just this transient thing. Oh, a bit of pain, it'll go. Now you're going, oh, no. You, you start to um, become tentative for movements. You may not do certain movements worried that you may get a painful stimulus. And you basically are priming yourself for pain. And when you prime yourself for pain, you're more likely to feel a painful experience. So if you're preparing for pain compared to somebody who's not preparing for pain... Is it subconscious? Uh, I suppose so. I, um, but if I say to you right now, "All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hurt you in three, two, one," you'll probably feel more pain than if I were to suddenly just yeah, sure, do it right. So you're priming yourself emotionally, so you have an emotional link with pain, and you amplify it as well. I read when we were doing the hearing podcast mm-hmm. that um, tinnitus is very very similar in a process to neuropathic pain. It's because of the sensitization. That's right. Yeah, this kind of positive feedback loop on itself that mm. just makes you more, oh, I guess, aware of it, yeah. of, of it, and it keeps pain more focus on it, which probably is subconscious at many levels. Yeah. It's not like you're consciously focusing on, on it, but you, somehow your brain is putting more attention on it, which just makes the whole thing worse and worse. All right, so that's basically talking the difference between nociceptive and neuropathic. Yes. Um, what about other pain states? Oh, so it's about emotional pain states. No, maybe going somatic, which is body. Oh, so visceral and s- visceral. We haven't spoken about visceral pain states. So okay, right, I think this is an interesting point. When you look at the viscera, so the organs, what you'll find is that. Okay, another, another, okay. (laughs) Let me first say that when you look at organs of the body, they don't feel pain the way we do subcutaneously, right? The heart will not feel mechanical pain 
but it will feel ischemic pain. Okay. The intestines will not feel cutting or burning or laceration, but it will feel pain due to distension. Right? Yeah, yeah. So that's a very that's the first point which I think is important. Second point is that when you look at the ratio between A delta fibers, the fast fibers, and C fibers, the dull ache fibers, the ratio is about 1 to 10. 1 A delta fiber in the body to a, or in the viscera. In the viscera. Okay. 1 to 10. And what is it in the body? This varies. Then? About 1 to 2. Okay. So subcutaneously so 1 to 2, more C fibers at the viscera. Are there any A deltas in the viscera? Yeah, I think so. Because what often happens with your viscera is the first experience of pain is a sharp pain, but then the majority of pain you experience afterwards is a dull, non-localized pain. Yeah. And so another important point is that you get a lot of referred pain for viscera. Right. And so this also has to do with sensitization because let's just say I have inflammation in my appendix, okay? Right lower quadrant of my abdomen. That's, that's somatic now. The appendix. Right lower quadrant. Once you localized it, that's now... Oh, no, I'm, no, sorry. I'm just highlighting where the appendix is for people, oh, not, okay. not where I'm experiencing the pain. Sorry. So the appendix is in the right lower quadrant, right? But it's inflamed. So it's stimulating nociceptors. But what I may feel is this non-localized sort of periumbilical pain, right? Don't know if it's right or left. It's sort of in the middle and sort of non-specific around the umbilicus. Yeah. Now, the, the reason why you feel this is, one, not many A-delta fibers, so it's not specific and sharp, but, and so there's more C-fibers. But the other thing is that when the pain sensation, the afferents, which are going to the brain, go from the appendix into the spinal cord, which is about T10, right? Yeah. There's going to be other afferents at T10 coming from other parts of the uh, abdomen, GIT, such as the umbilicus, the peritoneum, or the, you're going to have various afferents coming into the grey horn there at T10. And so if you've got pain coming from the appendix, you're going to sensitize that. So you're going to have substance P, you're going to have uh, glutamate, and you're going to have all these chemical mediators there, right, that have been released. And they're sensitizing the pain receptor. But at the same time, they're sensitizing all the pain receptors there for all the parts of the body that, are, that enter at T10. And so you get a non-specific referred pain for all these areas. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Or well, particularly your intestine. Your intestine is a, a big, I don't know, four, four or five meter lump of wormy tissue. <laughs> and it's all kind of, it's all innovation is going into the spinal cord together. Mm. And so regardless of where you're kind of stimulating it from a, a C fiber point of view, it's going to be felt all in that kind of That's right. lumpy position. So wherever the pain is coming into the spinal cord, you could pretty much expect to experience pain for whatever other part of the body is entering the spinal cord at that level because they'll all become sensitized because the chemicals are just released in the gray horn. Yeah. So when we look at our viscera, these are the, the organs in your body that are fairly much hollow. So mm. So, think about... Let's list a few. So, you've got your heart, you've got your lungs, and you've got your intestines, okay? Your kidney, your liver. Yeah. These are, these are what we call viscera, and they don't feel the pain like our muscles or our skin would. No. Or even our bones, okay? Now, the type of... Now, as Michael said, the majority of the fibers are going to be C fibers, so they're very dull 
poorly localized. But what they will respond to, unlike the other ones we spoke about, temperature, um, noxious stimulus, they actually respond to a number of other things. Ischemia is one. So this is lack of blood flow or oxygen. Chemicals, but also um, distension, so being stretched and um, kind of like spasmodic events in the, in the smooth muscle. Mm. And so if you think of it as ischemia, a classic ischemic pain would be chest pain that goes with heart attack or angina. Yeah. So why do you think that oxygen, low of oxygen, decreased amount of oxygen, would cause chest pain? Well, it's going to be... It makes sense that we would evolve. So... But why would ischemia, why would lack of oxygen, what is it about o, no O2 or low O2 that would cause it to be painful? Cause, well, the muscle will die without the oxygen. And if the muscle dies, then but that tissue an, won't work. You get angina, which is not muscle death. It's just uh, annoyance. It is, but again, pain is described in terms of potential mm. or actual tissue damage. I agree, but what, is, what do you think is happening to... To make that painful stimulus in a, in a low oxygen state in the heart. Are you talking about why is it evolved to no, no, no. do that, or what is actually happening, yeah, what's happening at the molecular basis? Yeah, basically. Oh, okay. So, okay, all right. Can I can I just have an educated yeah, guess? Yeah, sure. Um, I would assume that there would so reduced oxygen at that area. Um, I assume this is going to lead to some sort of cascading chemical f- events uh, maybe increase CO2 I'm, I know that sometimes gases can act like neurotransmitters um, no nah, give me an answer you're getting, you're getting close what is it um, well you're running out of oxygen so what does your body do in a low oxygen state metabolically ah lactic acid mm, lactic acid ah. so it's just a high amount of lactic acid in the area and so potentially the pH or the acidity is what's causing that painful stimulus. And so they, they did this by um, putting blood pressure cuff around a person's arm, just pumping it really tight unt- until there's no blood getting down to the arm. Like my students do to me when I let them practice. Yeah. And so <laughs> my fingers just, go numb. You could just let it go, um, just let your arm go still, and it would take you about mm, two to three minutes until you start to get ischemic pain. Oof. But if you start contracting, so if you start pumping your um, wrist, like squeezing a ball, and pumping your forearm muscles, it only takes about 20 seconds till you get that ischemic pain. Mm. And so we, they deduced that it's actually um, the lactic acid. So you, if you're pumping your muscles, you, that need, makes sense. you need more energy, and mm. then you've got no oxygen to make ATP, so you need to go into an alternative supply. So when I do my squats... In my garage, and I put the weights on, and I do high reps, and I do it until my legs are burning, and I feel like I'm about to collapse. Reduced oxygen, increased lactic acid, and it's causing the pain, saying you need to stop because you're not getting enough oxygen. Well, lactic acid would, yeah. But viscera, which is very important, is it needs a huge diverse or diffuse area to be responding um, to actually get the the pain. So yeah. it's not like a little bit, you could just stimulate in a bit of your finger mm. to get a bit of somatic pain. You need a big wide area of viscera to be um, responding to the stimulus to, 
to give pain. So you could, again, hit your intestine, let's say, <laughs> if you had the intestine out on the table and yeah. you whacked it with a hammer. So I've had a prolapse. It prolapsed <laughs> intestines. Just hypothetically, let's say your <laughs> intestines are on your table. Okay, and I yeah. I just whacked it with a hammer. Yeah, nothing. It probably wouldn't feel a great deal. Yeah. But, but if, if I then put a balloon... Blow air into if it. If I put a balloon into it and start yeah. blowing up, because it's pressing over a high degree of area, it's going to be highly painful. Wow. And then all your smooth muscle, contractile, um, uh, kind of, what's the word? Um, spasm, spasm-like yeah. pain is some of the worst visceral pain. You mm. Oh, man. You, Have so you ever had a bad cramp? Well, like a calf that, cramp? Oh. Well, that's, that's somatic, but put it into the viscera. So ah, I don't think, yeah, well, I've obviously never had one. Put a stone down a ureter <laughs> or put a, a gallstone in the... In the um, Bile duct. Bile duct. Highly painful. Ooh. Or ask the females when they get, you know, the cramping pain at the end of the month. True. That's hugely painful. And that's viscera. Labor. I heard that's a bit painful. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so this is highlighting visceral pain. And I think when you said the referred pain, the, the good example of a referred pain is why do you get, again, using the heart attack, why do you get um, pain going down your left arm? I assume it's because, again, well, your left arm, you're going to have your brachial plexus, which is going to be coming out at the bottom of cervical on top of thoracic. Mm. I assume that the afferents coming from the heart also come in at that level of the spinal cord. And therefore, the pain stimulus coming from the heart is going to sensitize that area of the gray matter. Or they just get mixed up. In the spinal cord. And also stimulates all the afferents that are going from that level up to the brain. Yeah, that's right. They just kind of, they mix the, the, the connection up and they think it should be really bringing sense, sense, sensitization from or sensation from your inner elbow on your left arm, but instead it's coming from your heart and mm. making you feel like you've got pain in your arm or your neck or your jaw. Yeah. All this referredness. Before we go, yeah, is there any ma- any anything important? Yeah, I think we need to. I think very quickly we should talk about some of the drugs. Well, you were going to touch upon this before when I did cut you off. You did, like the gate theory. Do you want to quickly? Okay, a yeah, two okay. minute explanation of what that is. Easy, easy peasy. So, when you've got your uh, primary afferent signal, so from the receptor, the nociceptor coming into the spinal cord, so the first neuron of the three in the pain chain. Right, as it comes in, pain train or pain chain? Pain chain, right? Pain chain, synapses and goes across to the other side of the spinal cord and then ascends. And I said that the touch signal goes into the spinal cord and ascends immediately, right? So something happens is that when the pain, sorry, when the touch signal comes into the spinal cord and ascends immediately, there actually are some branches, some neurons that branch off and away from the ascending pain signal at the spinal cord where the pain signal synapses with its second neuron. So the first neuron for touch comes into the spinal cord, jumps into the white matter of the dorsal column and ascends. But while that's happening, a branch comes off while it's in the dorsal horn and synapses right where and synapses right where the pain signal synapses in the dorsal gray horn. This touch signal is synapsing with an interneuron, which then synapses with the pain neuron. 
So a touch signal synapses with an interneuron that then synapses with a pain neuron. And when you have a touch signal coming in, it sends a negative signal to the pain signal and says stop. Which means that when you fall over and you graze your knee and you rub it and go, ah, ah, or hit your head and you rub it and you really rub it good, right? (laughs) What you're doing is you're... Arousing yourself. (laughs) 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 You're stimulating touch receptors, not pain receptors. And the touch receptors, you're getting this overwhelming touch sensation coming into the spinal cord, which then goes, not just goes up to the brain, but also goes via this interneuron that stimulates the pain neuron and says, stop, stop, stop. And basically is like a gate that you're closing on the pain signal. So it's called the pain gate theory. Basically, it's, there's only enough room for either a touch signal or a pain signal to get, get to up to your brain. And so if you overwhelm it with a touch signal, you're closing the gate to pain. Right. That's the pain gate theory. Yeah. And, th- and this is where you can start playing around with it with other things like um, possibly the TENS machine where you put yep. um, these electrical stimulus on your skin or your muscle and you start to put electrical impulses through your muscle or whatever. Yep. And it kind of... Um, Stimulates the touch signal, yeah, which closes the gate for pain. Does it close it or just bombards the gate and then basically nerve or painful stimulus can't get through well, the gate? Well, it, it, it negatively okay. stimulates it. And this is probably also where, and I don't want to really go down this path too far, but I'm just going to say it. This is probably also potentially where acupuncture works. Or not. It changes, or potentially it changes not. the affect of the feeling of... Even though, even though the uh, systematic reviews and meta-analyses state that acupuncture, actually acupuncture in itself, putting needles in somebody's body yep. does not affect or negatively affect or modulate pain. Okay. It I've demonstrates never it, I've that... I've never had it done, but I demonstrates just, that I've the just effect, the effect is happening when somebody lays their hands upon you for a treatment. Yeah. It's simply the treatment which is giving you the pain relief and not, the sorry, it's not the modality. specific treatment okay. that's giving you the pain relief. It's simply the fact that you know that you're getting a treatment. Right. That okay. seems to be where the evidence sits. I yeah. may be wrong and that evidence may be wrong. Maybe they need to do more studies, but they seem to be pretty confident that acupuncture does not do too much. Now, the, now this is the thing. Pain is so subjective that if it works for yeah, you, right. then it works. It's not like other placebos. This is the psychogenic aspect of it, right? Yes. And and I need to be really clear because this is not like other placebos. People say, oh, if that placebo works for him, then good on him. Let him go for it. For pain, that's fine. I'm okay with that. You can't do it for other things. A placebo doesn't work. People think, oh, it's a placebo effect. So, you know, you think it's working, so it's working. It's not true. A placebo isn't working. You just have an appearance that it seems to be having an effect. But if you give somebody a placebo and they've got cancer, for example, this sugar pill that you're giving them effectively does not have any pharmacological effect and doesn't work, right? Now, if the patient says, oh, I'm getting less symptoms, and you go, oh, wow, wonderful, this is great, this, it's, you're still not giving them something that works, that is shown to work. Do you know what I mean? I think so. It's not going to reduce tumor size. It's not going to uh, mitigate the effects of the cancer. 
you can have the psychological benefits of a placebo, but a placebo itself doesn't actually have any physiological effect. I knew I shouldn't have brought this up. Well, it's important <laughs> though. But when it comes to pain, go for it because because pain is all at the level of perception. Yeah, whatever kind of works. Whatever works is fine. But that that I think that's an important point to. But one last thing I will say. What about morphine and heroin and cocaine? Are we going to talk about them or not? I don't think we're going to run antidepressant, out of time. antidepressants. One thing I will say, however, going back to that trip trip V one receptor, which is on those um, noxious or nociceptive receptors. One exogenous um, chemical that acts on that is capsaicin, which comes from chilies, and that gives us the sense of heat. And if you put a you know a chili in your mouth, you feel that sensation of heat. So mm. it's not actually a taste; it's a pain. It's yeah. a form of pain reception. And so by putting capsaicin on your skin, it opens up the trip V1 channels which is essentially those bare sodium channels which gives you the sense of pain or heat and all it really does is it just brings the resting state closer to a firing state so it doesn't actually open it but it just kind of brings the resting state all those all those receptors that would normally respond to temperature at let's say 40 degrees to now the room temperature hence why when you put other foods in your mouth and liquids in your mouth, they stimulate burning. Yeah, right? and then you could even try it with menthol, and menthol will go the opposite way with cool, mm. coolth. Coolth. Um, but why I'm saying this is because in some of the ointments that you may put on your skin, like deep heat, that's got um, capsaicin in it, and that will give you that feeling of burning, but it's not actually telling your blood vessels to dilate. But it does work as an analgesic. Right, and the, the way that it works, capsaicin, capsaicin actually causes the nociceptive um, neurons to regress so they actually die off but it also basically uh, tells the nociceptors it, it depletes them of substance p yeah and probably and probably that as well as you know kills or prunes them off they so does that grow. mean the more you have the more chilies you have the less sensitive you will be to pain because they're killing off pain receptors well from chilies yeah. So probably people who have a lot of chili in their food mm. have a higher tolerance to chili than people who... And are. birds don't have these trip V1 receptors. That's why they can eat these chilies and poop them all out. They don't have trip V1 receptors. Okay. So they don't experience chili-based pain. There you go. Mm. Just quickly... It's good to know. I might have to start feeding too much chickens. For chronic pain... Does that mean the eggs will become spicy? <laughs> no, I doubt it. I doubt it. Does does your poo become spicy after you eat chilies? You do get the ring of fire. Yeah, that's because you only got receptors in your mouth and your anus. Oh, speak not, for yourself, all right? <laughs> not not in your intestines. But even though my gut. But really that means your poo must be spicy. Must be. Otherwise, what's triggering your butthole to burn? Right? Well, why doesn't it happen with menthol then? Or if you have like a mentos, must have <laughs> a half life. Must have a shorter half life. <laughs> Gets gets degraded chemically within your GRT. This podcast is degrading. <laughs> I think so. Uh, I think we need to very quickly, right? Very quickly, we it's should... It's one hour and 27 minutes. People love this. We buggered up the first 15 minutes by talking crap. Okay, so if you got to this point, next time just fast forward. <laughs> yeah, next time. <laughs> like they're going to listen to it twice. Okay, you know what we should do for another episode? We should do an episode on NSAIDs and we should do an episode on opioids. 
Yeah, I think we should. Um, that could be the. Um, what's the term for following? <laughs> the sequel. The sequel. There we go. I'm thinking prequel, but obviously you can't. No, no, no. It's not the prequel. Yeah, it's the sequel. Poor. It's the less than equal. So we'll potentially follow this one up with um, some drugs. All right. Some pain medications. But just quickly, NSAIDs are used. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Uh, you can use the opioids, which is going to be like the heroin. Well, we don't want to use that. Cocaine. We don't probably use that either. A good one, is, well, one that's become a higher notoriety is um, methadone. Methadone? Mm. Well, For pain medication. Well, it's, it's basically heroin. Get, <laughs> but you don't get the uh, addictive properties to True. It than the other ones. So that's become a big one. True. And also um, DMT and... My favorite rapper. And acid... And the tr- like, honestly, they're using these psychedelics to mitigate pain as well. Again, at the perception level? At the perception. Oh, yeah, at the perception level. All right, guys. So, this went for an hour and a half. Hopefully, it wasn't painful. Yeah, well, it was for me. We'll see you soon. Any final comments? Oh, yeah, maybe um, give us a rating. Uh, I know the first 15 minutes was pretty crap, but hopefully you We're gained a lot of information. Now. We are on the radio. We're on ABC Brisbane. So if you're listening overseas, you can listen to us online, 9 p.m. Tuesdays. Or we have another Queensland time. podcast location, don't we? True. You don't have to listen to us live. We've actually created another podcast with those radio segments. So we've got listener calls, people calling in, telling us weird things like one guy can smell snakes and another guy said sunglasses cause cancer. So you can listen to these uh, phone calls and uh, listen to our responses. It's called, what's it called? Oh, it's called How the Body Works. That's the name of the podcast. You type in How the Body Works, you'll see a picture of Dr. The Matt evening show on Dr. Brisbane Mike. ABC. Yeah, Brisbane ABC. Otherwise, please give us an iTunes rating of five. Um, and, uh, you know, tell us you love us and that you and, like and the you show. And you do have one bit of homework that you need to answer. Yeah, why does the pain pathway ascend the spinal cord on a different side to the fine touch pathway? Peace out. Okay, bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.